Welcome back to the Plenary Session Podcast. This is the podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. We're back with a good episode. Recently, I was recording with Dr. Adam Sifu and John Mandrola for the Sensible Medicine feed. I'm going to make that audio available here because it was such a great conversation. I think you'll like it and because too few people are listening to it over there. So I also encourage you to subscribe to the Sensible Medicine podcast. In the second part of this, I'm going to play the audio of a video I made for YouTube about Rochelle Walensky and the lies she told Congress. And later this week, I'll be back with a lecture on cost of drugs. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Welcome back again to the Sensible Medicine Roundtable Discussion. I'm joined by Professor Adam Sifu from the University of Chicago and Dr. John Mandrola, cardiologist from Louisville, Kentucky. Gentlemen, it's great to see you again. We have a great lineup in store for you. First, we're going to talk about how to interpret studies, particularly when there's residual uncertainty, which there always is. Next, we're going to talk about seven doses of booster, seven doses of vaccine, I guess five boosters and two bivalent boosters. It's like I always say, seventh one's the charm. We're going to talk about that. And then if we have time, we're going to talk about ABIM and certification, board certification. So gentlemen, it's great to see you again. Why don't we have Adam kick this off? So this is all about uncertainty and study design. Whenever you run a study, you get particularly randomized study, you'll get some point estimate, but you also get a confidence interval around that. How do you think about this, Adam? How do you make sense of it? Why don't you kick it off? Um, yeah, you know what I could do? do you, you want me to show slides? I have some sort of basic slides from a course of sort of how I always discuss p-value. I'd expect no less. I expect no Did less I than slides. <laughs> I got slides for everything, damn it. Um, like a fourth year student all over again. Uh, totally. <laughs> totally. Okay, here, I'll share my screen um, like, a, like a good Zoomer, okay? Um, here we go. And then you guys can actually critique my slides and tell me that I'm getting it all wrong all these years. My students will have post-traumatic stress disorder seeing this. Um, so, I, you know, p-values are kind of old school, right? I, I always pitch that, you know, we're used to saying, oh, p equals 0.05. You know, this is wonderful. This this passes the sniff test. Um, so p-values, I as a non-statistician say, you know, there are probability of getting a result or a difference is what we're always interested in, at least as extreme as the one you found if the samples, which are like the treatment control group, came from the same population. And so what that means is that if you get a low p-value, it means the groups are very unlikely to came from, come from the same population. So the treatment, that, the intervention that you've, that you've included in your study means that it's changed those two groups, right? Um, and so that's how we use p-values. Um, so this is just sort of an example that I always throw. I think this is actually from the West of Scotland study to go to go way, way back. Um, so, you know, if you're told, okay, the relative risk is 0.7 and the P equals less than 0.05, that means there's less than a 5% chance that the groups being compared are from the same population. So basically less than a 5% chance that your intervention had no effect. Um, people often say that, say that, okay, there's less than a 5% likelihood that the difference between the two groups is due to chance. I know statisticians like go nuts when they hear that, um, but a lot of people say that, and uh, I don't know. I'll 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 stay out of that. Um, confidence intervals I always find are a little bit more helpful um, because not only do they give a level of significance, but they kind of give a level of certainty. Um, the definition really is: were we to repeat this study with multiple samples? 
the calculated confidence intervals, and the confusing thing is the confidence intervals would be different every time you did this study, would encompass the true results 95% of the time. Um, and my sort of non-statistician brain, the way I flip that around is, well, if we repeat the study 100 times, you'd get a result within the confidence intervals 95 times. And that's not perfectly right. Um, the definition on this slide is more correct. Um, and so when I use these, I always think, okay, confidence intervals, two pieces of information. You get a level of significance. If the confidence interval crosses one, the result's non-significant. That's by convention. Um, and precision, right? And I think this is probably what you guys have been have been talking about so much lately. Um, you know, if you have two studies, both have a relative risk of 0.7, but one has confidence intervals 0.62 to 0.78, you know, that's a pretty precise study, right? You have a very good sense of how effective this intervention is. While on the other hand, if your confidence intervals go from 0.1 to 0.95, you know, this intervention could be hugely effective or could be barely effective at all. Um, p-values really only give you one um, piece of information. It says, you know, how likely is this result to be, I don't know, true? You know, how likely were we to reject the null hypothesis? So maybe that's sort of my my basis of a place to jump off for, for people who don't do this all the time. Um, but, but Adam, the p-value thing, is that similar to the same population? Would that be similar to saying if you if the null hypothesis means that there's no treatment effect, right, then right. the the p-value is really a measure of how surprising the data is if there was no if there Absolutely. was no effect. Absolutely. And so, but it's kind of a made-up hypothesis that there's no that there's no treatment effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we're going, you know, and, and that's getting into more of, I think, the the sort of Bayesian way that we look at these studies, right? Um, you you never have no idea um, that the treatment's going to do something. Sure, there's uncertainty, right? There's equipoise as we go into this. But every study that anybody ever reads, they go into it with some like pre-study probability that the intervention has an effect or doesn't have an effect. Yeah, I think that's okay, really so, nicely stated. I guess yeah. the only things I just to, just to point on that is that you know, to defend the p-value and the frequentists a little bit, because you're exactly right, John, it assumes you're sampling from the same, you have a jar of M&Ms, you want to know how many yellow M&Ms you're putting your hand in twice, the same jar, or is you're putting your hand in two different jars, right? So it assumes you're put, sampling from the same population, and do you see result this extreme or more extreme? But the beauty of it is, in a world before we had computing power, computers at our fingertips, this was the most straightforward way to make this calculation, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, you can look up these values in tables and actually have some conclusion in your in your practice. And I think that's why frequentist statistics took off. And then for the confidence interval, I think Adam's definition is spot on. A mistake people make is they say the, the probability the point estimate is in the confidence interval is 95%, but that's wrong. It's either in it or it isn't in it. And it's, it's really a long haul statistic. It's over doing this many, many times over. But exact, but but this is the crux of it. Why don't you bring the clinician in, John? Bring the clinician in. How's the clinician okay. thinking about this? And and let's talk about that. So here's what I want to know. Here's what I want to know. I want to know. Well, we 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 have these New England papers, and we have you know JAMA papers, and we we have these papers, and we have a result, and then we're 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 forced to conclude based on the conference intervals and the p-values, and. And it, it seems like 
it seems like there's a little bit of variability in in how we conclude. Okay, f for instance, if if you take um, <clears throat> a really really important trial um, that goes against my grain is this Dankavas trial. Dankavas was a was a Danish trial looking at screening cardiovascular screening um, in a population, and uh, they found that there was and it was a mortality trial. They found that the screening program. The, the relative risk or odds ratio or whatever hazard ratio was was 0.95, so 5% reduction. And the conference interval went from 0 0.90, 10% reduction, to 1.0, you know, no reduction. And New England made them say that there was no significant difference. So so that that seems really like, you know, and the p-value I think was like 0.06 or something. And so they had to declare. But, I, but if you look at that, 95% conference interval, the, and you sort of convert it to the probability of benefit, it seems like the whole conference interval was pretty much, you know, below, below one. But then, but then your, your whole point with this mass study is that we had a, we had a hazard ratio that was, you know, basically below one and above one by almost the same amount. And, you know, people are saying, well, that's inconclusive. And so my question is, you know, what, what's our threshold for conclusive and inconclusive? And, and I'm asking, I, I really I really don't know. My bias in this debate, and we're gonna, I get, we'll bring in Adam in a second, but my bias is whatever you want, you just have to be consistent. And so I actually agree with the statistical purists uh, on the internet like Frank, um, Frank Harrell from uh, Nashville, which is that if you run a study and you have a wide conference interval, you're actually quite should be quite inconclusive about your results. There's still a lot of uncertainty about the true point estimate is. It could be you run it many, many more times and crank up that sample size. It could be a benefit. It could also trend towards null. It could even be a decrement. So I actually agree with him that he's right. But the point I want to make is I just need you to be consistent. So if you're going to have, if you're going to say that for masking, we need 25 more studies to tighten up that conference interval around null, then you got to say the same thing for all of the other things in medicine that somebody could feel that way about. And I just show my figure. It's not a slide. I'm not as polished as Adam, but it is a figure from a preprint we have up. And and I'll give a little bit of the backstory. The backstory, the preprint's entitled Interpretation of Wide Confidence Intervals in Meta-Analytic Estimates is the Absence of Evidence Evidence of Absence. And we're looking at Cochrane and we're basically asking, how consistent are they? And what happened was, of course, the mask study came back and it had a wide conference interval, relative risk 1.01, 0 0.72 to 1.42. And, you know, the Tom Jefferson, the first author, says there's just no evidence that they make any difference, full stop. There's no evidence that they make a difference. That's what he says. Carla Soros Weiser, the editor-in-chief, says many have incorrectly claimed masks don't work, but that's wrong. The results are inconclusive. Then what I did was, or what we did was, Sarah Miller, a student here, myself, Jordan Tuya, we just pulled the last 20 Cochrane reviews where it had a similar result. The relative risk is null. The confidence interval is wide. Jefferson shown here, you know, it's one of them. But there's some that are even wider, 0.59 to 1.65. And uh, there's some that are even more unfavorable, perhaps, like um, uh, Kim. Kim is, I'm sorry, it's more favorable. And uh, there's some that are more unfavorable on the other side. So Kim is one of the ones where, if anything, it's like Dan Kavos, right? Uh, the upper bound goes to 1.04. And we just pulled what Cochran says verbatim in their conclusion about these things. With moderate certainty, remdesivir probably makes little to no difference for all-cause mortality. Compared to expectant management, there was no clear difference of induction of labor. Dose-escalated RT probably results in little to no difference. The hazard ratio is 0.66 to 
And then finally, you know, wearing masks in the community probably makes little to no difference in the outcome. And so I guess the point of this article is not to end this debate, which will go on forever. It's just to say that what Tom Jefferson did is consistent with what they all do in Cochrane. These are 20, these are just the last 20. We're not even chair, this is just consecutively picked. And if you want to tell me that for masks, we have to just say it's inconclusive, we don't know, then sure, but do that for everything else too. And then show me how you're going to talk to a patient. I really want to know that. You're going to go in the room and be like, well, you know, I could offer you vitamin D and vitamin E. It's only, it's inconclusive. It's inconclusive. Avermectin's inconclusive, you know. So that to me is what my issue is. I just want consistency. And I don't care what the, I mean, I, I'd rather be precise and wrong. No, no, no. But you know what I mean. All right, Adam, what are your thoughts on this? So first, I, I, I've been incredibly busy. So I've been completely off Twitter for the last couple of weeks. Congratulations. Um, thank you. So this is the first time I've seen that. And I I think that's a that's a great paper. Um, I, I love how you went through that. I, I love that forest plot, even though it's not nearly as nice as my PowerPoint slides. <laughs> but um, um, and and I really do agree with everything you said. On on the one hand, I, I think we do need to agree on, you know, some level of, you know, certainty, right? Where we draw the line, you know, what our acceptable alpha error is. I remember years ago, I gave a, re, you know, reversal talk to a lay audience and a lay audience in Hyde Park in Chicago is not like a lay audience everywhere else. And some physicist stood up and was like, 95%, you know, 5% alpha error. What the hell is that? We go to like, you know, seven digits to say that that we're not making a mistake. Um, but I think what this brings in nicely is, is it really is different for me as a clinician, right? If if the results of a study is a relative risk of 1.01, .01, right, with fairly wide confidence intervals, um, you know, write a, you know, sort of symmetric confidence intervals around there. I read that as, you know, this is negative. And yeah, we could do a million studies and those confidence intervals will probably tighten up, but it'll probably still be negative, right? But bringing a little bit into the, the Bayesian um, look that John said, you know, if there's something that I go into with, you know, I think this really works and the confidence interval is sorry, the relative risk is 0.9 and the confidence intervals are, you know, 0.8 to 1.01. .01. I sort of look at that and say, wow, you know, this effect is probably small. And there's a possibility that in the next 10 years, as we do more of these studies and see some meta-analyses, we're going to accept that this has a significant benefit. And if I sort of think that that's likely something that's going to happen, I'm going to act on that paper in that way. Um, or at least I'm going to counsel the patient in that way, I should say. That's interesting. Yeah, but let Is me there... push back. Oh, uh, I... Let me put. Let me push back against that and say, but but that gives uh, that gives like proponents of of something a lot of leeway, right? If we don't if we don't have a threshold. So let let me, let me can I let me try and share my screen and I'll, I'll show you something. Um, I want to show you a trial in in. Uh, an EP. I don't know. Can I share my screen? Yeah, or no? yeah, yeah. You can hit the share Oh, share button. screen. There you go. Okay, so Google Chrome. All right. Uh, let me show you. Uh, can you see this now? Yeah. One, you have too many tabs open. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is Cabana. This yeah. is antiarrhythmic drugs versus ablation. And you know, there's a lot of ablation <clears throat> proponents. And this was a big trial. Big trial. So let me show you here. 
here's the primary here's the primary endpoint, uh, mm-hmm. which is you know a mace endpoint 0. Yeah. 0.86, right? Yeah. 14 14 yeah. percent reduction. Yeah. And the conference intervals go from 0. 0.65 to 1.15. The p value is not significant. But if you're an ablation proponent, you can point to that and say there may be a 35 percent reduction. Right. In, in major outcomes with ablation. Now it could be 15% worse, but it could be 65%. So it's a 14% point estimate. So you have a p-value of 0.3s. It's not very surprising data given the null effect. And so right. this, is, this is the problem with Adam, your point of saying, well, I believe this works. I'm an ablation guy. I make a lot of money doing it. And so look at that lower bound of the conference interval. And so that's what my question is as a clinician is, is I just, you know, I, I just worry about this sort of um, this 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 non-threshold way of of interpreting these studies. And John, that's so, that's so well said, because I mean, I, I look at that result. Right. And that's negative to me. Right. Like, right. No me question. I, I'm like, we don't know anything based on that. Right. P equals point three wide confidence intervals. Geez you know, give me a whole bunch more studies. And I think as I kind of read into the future, and this is, you know, I always hate to say, oh, this is based on 25 years of looking at studies. You know, in 25 years, you know, if the technology doesn't change and we continue to to study that, even if we find out that's beneficial, right? After another 12 studies, we're going to find that the benefit is so small because we're going to need so many people to show significance there, right? That, that those results in themselves to me are like, you know, we got to go back to the drawing board and we got to do something different. Yeah, but there. but they randomized 2,200 patients across the world in multiple centers and spent, this was a this was a NIH funded study has been gazillions of dollars and 2200 patients you need 22,000 22,000 yeah. to see the benefit John but I think say- Adam but I think Adam I want to make a point yeah. to the listeners what you're saying and I and and I appreciate this um is that if you have to randomize that many patients and if you have to do 10 more studies to to show something you know has a precise conference intervals then that is information in, in and of itself, telling you that there's probably not a major difference between using antiarrhythmic drugs or ablation or drug A or drug B or whatever. And then uh, I want to push on good, the, yeah, go on. Let me just say, I think a good example of this to take it away from this silly electrophysiology thing that affects, <laughs> you know, basically nobody, is this is the issue with mammography, yes, right? right? I mean, yes, if we randomize, you know, I don't know, three and a half million people, we might actually find that you know, doing mammograms is definitively useful, but boy, that's a lot of people with a lot of harm to put through mammography. It's don't, actually don't the even... problem with all screening, including colonoscopy. I know there's a no. debate winner here who's, <laughs> he may have won the debate back then, but now tie... the, the shoe's on the other foot. The other point I want to make is that, I mean, we have to have some intellectual honesty in the sense that I don't think ivermectin helps COVID. I think we've done enough studies and we can stop. I don't think vitamin D, you know, helps anything. I mean, besides maybe actual rickets, you know, I don't know. I don't think it helps anything (laughs) except rickets, you know. Um, And I guess I just want to say that the same people who want to say that mask data is inconclusive want to also say that the ivermectin believers are morons 
and they have like basically the same conference interval. And so all I want to say is you just have to be consistent. So either you all are in the same game where it's okay for them to keep calling for more ivermectin studies and it's okay for you to be calling for more masking studies or you're, you know, you're in a different game. And then the point about like the, the pretest, the Bayesian part, I like a lot of things about Bayesian statistics, but the one thing I have never seen anyone solve is what is the pretest probability? You know, we, it's often your gut and we know our guts are not reliable in this business. And if anything, we're too optimistic. Um, so I think that, that, that to me is what I find to be the reason why this particular issue got under my skin a little bit was, you know, I saw the Cochrane editor scolding Tom Jefferson. And then I just looked through 20 Cochrane. I'm like, he's basically, and then I also found out they actually have guidance for the language they use. So he actually has no leeway. He, you know, like <laughs> he, he didn't, he did not even have a choice. He, he just did what everyone is doing in the reports. And so either we're going to say Cochrane is all wrong. All these reports would say inconclusive. And that, and thus, if you want to, um, skin and care interventions for infants in preventing eczema, that should also be, you know, up for debate too. That's up for debate too. You know, whatever you want to moisturize the infant with. Or we're going to have to say that there's just the last point. There's just so many hypotheses that if we don't have some sort of str strict test for what's going to make it, I guess what stops us from just doing a million studies of everything under the sun? And and what is the burden? Do we have to keep doing studies until we show the conference interval exclude? Like it, it's definitely killing people. Like we got to run it until until you got a dead body count on you know. Like I don't know. So to me, I you know I just come back to the. The fact that, as Adam pointed out, that if I saw that that study you just showed there, what was that, uh, Cabana? Cabana. Yeah, if I saw Cabana as a non-EP doctor, I'm like, that's just stone cold negative, and I don't want to hear about this again. And I'm and I'm annoyed that you even told me the first time because <laughs> I don't care, you know. Um, so but that's the my, problem yeah. with the, I think the problem. I love the Bayesian thing because just just to bring it to to the listeners, the the idea. The idea with a Bayesian approach is that you're trying to find a probability of a benefit once seeing the data, rather than what the probability that the you know is of the null hypothesis, so the made-up hypothesis. But the, the the problem with the Bayesian thing is that the how you believe or or that pretest that pretest belief, just like it would with chest pain in a stress test, play plays into it. But I think what the Bayesians would say is that you have to calculate the probability of benefit with with a pessimistic prior with an optimistic prior with a neutral prior and you have to you have to calculate what those probabilities are after seeing the data and that makes it complicated and 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 people don't like complicated i think that complicated is okay but uh, that's the i think that's the problem with the bayesian statistics you could take a null trial and like make this it that i just showed you and I bet if you converted this to Bayesian, there'd be a substantial probability of of right. uh, ablation better than drugs because the confidence interval is wider on the on the benefit side than it is on the on the harm side. You know, two things are still binary in this world. One, do I offer it to my patient? And two, does the insurance company pay for it? And that's the challenge with, you know, you can be as nuanced as you want, but at the end of the day, are we gonna offer this new like there are many drugs that don't come to market with a confidence interval like that? What, what the FDA is saying is that you don't get to offer that drug to your patient, no matter how, uh, you know, ba you can do all the Bayesian you want. They're not going to let you offer the drug. And then there are many drugs that and procedures that we don't reimburse for. And I think to me, at the end of the day, they're two those are the two binary questions.
Adam, you're going to say? Not sure if this confuses things or not, but John, you sort of alluded to it. I think that one of the reasons that we get into this problem is that, you know, physicians have to be Bayesian when they're diagnosticians, right? Um, because we all do a test because we have some level of pretest probability, right? Some, some level of suspicion. We do a test and then we have to incorporate that pretest probability into those test results. And we can say, oh, well, this is easier because you can look up in a book, you know, if I have a you know, overweight 40 year old woman with right upper quadrant pain, what's the likelihood that she has gallstones? And then I can look up the sensitivity specificity of a right upper quadrant ultrasound, right? And come up with an answer. But in fact, that pretest probability is not something you can look up in a book, right? And that's pretty soft. Um, and so I think, you know, going through our careers, doing that everyday managing patients, it, I think it maybe sets us up for errors when we're looking at studies, because we're a little bit more used to bringing in information that we know, when if you're looking at Cabana or Bankovus or whatever, you know, we don't really know or masks or anything, because um, that's why we're doing the study, because we don't know. You know? That's really well um, said. And, you know, the only thing I'd add to that is that maybe the bias that all three of us share, just having been in this sandbox so long, is that we just think the pretest probability of a lot of things is just really low. Like, you know, we're not nihilists. We're not like it could never work. We just think that in the grand arc of human history, most things didn't pan out the way they did. And maybe because we were all interested in reversals to some degree, you know, Adam with his women's health initiative sort of experiences and John with, you know, cardiac antiarrhythmic suppression trial. Um, those are ones that probably, you know, you like, let's just take cast. If what if you ask the cardiologists in 1985, what's the pretest probability that CAST will be a positive study? You know, they're going to say an optimistic prior, right? And actually, it, I'm curious to go look up, and we are going to look up the conference intervals for all the reversals that we take for granted. But I did one cool. autologous stem cell transplant. It was very wide, you know? Um, so I just think that, like, that's just not the way we've been practicing for 30 years. Like, CAST was enough to end that practice. It killed it. I'm going to look it up. Yeah, time. but CAST was CAST is not a good example of this okay. uncertainty because the conference intervals were so much greater on the harm side. I mean, it was pretty clear that it was pretty clear that there was harm. In fact, that and one of them right, killed I, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, oh, okay. but yeah, I'm looking yeah. at it. The relative risk of death was 2.64. 95% was a 1.6 to 4. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, it really killed him. Okay. Yeah, yeah. you were you were at the le at the least you were 60% worse, right? Yeah. <laughs> But maybe yeah. Women's Health Initiative was more closer to... That was close. Women's closer Health Initiative, I think it was like 1.2 or 1.3 yeah. as a lower yeah. bound, but yeah. That 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 dunk, dank of us, dunk of us, however you want to say it, article drove me absolutely nuts for so many reasons. We could do an entire podcast on that. And that's a study that I go into with negative priors for so many reasons that not only do I think screening you know, for let's just say coronary disease, you know, risk factors for coronary events is a bad idea. I think the downstream consequences of that screening is a bad idea. And then I felt like that study was designed in a ridiculous way, but I'll just, I can't but, but, shut but up. But the problem, the problem is it was a Danish study and Danish environment. It's, that's another thing. Trial environments play into yes. things so much, right? Because yes. In Denmark, you're not going to have the downstream harm that we that we have here with, like, say, yes. coronary artery calcium screening and, and 
these these sorts of things. So listeners who want to hear this discussion, we will do this paper someday. Just a sneak preview that someday soon, the three of us may be offering an online clinical trials course. This will be so. This will be a little bonus. We're gonna put this pearl in there. That's that's a teaser for the the faithful fans. The last thing I'll say as we conclude this topic, somebody accused me that I only did that preprint for the clicks, and I want to promise you one thing: <laughs> <laughs> there ain't nobody out there who cares enough about conference intervals to be doing that for the clicks. You do that because <laughs> you may you can you can make all sorts of things, but that's not for the clicks. Okay, ain't nobody interested in that paper on SSRN, <laughs> the preprint server. Okay, I'll, I'll second that, Benai, because <laughs> I'll just tell you that. Um, uh, having uh, writing writing for Medscape, uh, I'm pretty much not allowed to not 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 prohibited from it, but just told that if you write about p values, conference interval statistics, you're gonna nobody's gonna read it. So <laughs> that's, a, that's so when we title this podcast, we can't put that in there. You guys are crazy. It was like the lead story on 60 Minutes last week, wasn't it? All about conference intervals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, conference intervals. Yeah, that's riveting. Well, the Sackler stuff will be there soon. That was great. Um, okay, let's talk about seventh dose is the charm. Seventh dose is <laughs> seventh dose is the charm. Um, I don't know. I mean, my only thoughts, and then well, I'll kick it to you, Adam. Um, my only thoughts on this is that, you know, I have no doubt that this is a good vaccine. Like statins are a good medicine, and like everything that's a medicine, there are there's a there's a there's a risk gradient there are people at high risk who benefit a lot from statins you know if you've had a cardio you've had an mi and you have high cholesterol like 4s study you get a massive reduction in out you get a massive benefit from taking that statin uh if you're a 16 year old who has mildly elevated cholesterol i honestly have no idea and i don't think any trial has any even tested what happens if you put those people on statin you know and so there's this huge gradient um uh that's true for statins I think there's also this question of diminishing returns. Like, I have no doubt that the COVID-19 vaccine works great in a 70-year-old, dose one. And we do know dose one is like 90% reduction in hospitalization. And then each additional dose has some thing, but it's got to diminish over time. And what I think is ironic about this seventh dose bivalent approval is two things. One, you have Peter Hotez and many others saying specifically, one of the reasons why they gave this EUA was that the Biden administration has a surplus of bivalent booster and they don't, it's going to go bad. So if we don't, if we don't, you either clean out that refrigerator or it's going to spoil, my friend. So drink the milk, John. I know you're not thirsty, but drink up that milk. That, so that to me rubs me the wrong way. Two, they have no data at all, in my opinion, that the second bivalent booster helps anybody. We can talk about these observational studies. That'll be fun. Um, and three, they have a population that doesn't really want them. We got 16% bivalent booster uptake for the first one. This will be a subset of that. Um, and four, we have less and less evidence for each additional dose, when ironically, you need the biggest study to find the marginal benefit now because, you know, the the biggest benefits were in the beginning. All right. Adam, what are your thoughts on this seventh dose? I'm going to be a little more gentle. Good. So first, it's the sixth dose, right? So it was three initial shots. (laughs) Okay. We gave a fourth to people who were at high risk. The fifth was the first bivalent. So this is the sixth, the second bivalent, right? I thought you could get two, the fourth and the fifth, if you were at high risk. And then this, I'm going to look it up. I, I actually had okay. my my uh, fact checker count, but okay, okay. let's six or seven. So well, we're either at okay. six or seven. Okay, fine. It, okay. And so, um, you know, I think the read for people who are in favor of this, right, is that um, 
we have some data. It's not terribly good. It's their observational studies that show if you compare people who have chosen to get a whatever sixth dose um, in addition to their fifth um, have some benefit in fewer hospitalizations over two to four months. Um, the efficacy is about 8%, okay? So that's, you know, about one in a thousand people who get the shot get some benefit from it. Now, the flaws of that are huge, right? We don't <laughs> approve vaccines based on observational studies. It's impossible to know if people who chose the shot are are less likely to benefit because they're super careful people who are not going to get COVID and do everything right, or they're actually at higher risk because they're getting the shot because they actually have problems. There's just no way, you know, whenever you try to figure out which way confounding goes, usually you're just, you're just adrift. Um, so, you know, approving this in a way, I could care less. You know, I, you guys might think there's some harm to this. I don't really think there's much harm to this, except it further, you know, lessens people's faith in public health in America, which is a disaster as it is. Um, but, you know, me as a primary care doctor, oh my God, you know, having to counsel people who are now like, you know, I got to get this shot and sort of pull them back to say, look, this is the decision you should make. And if you want to get it, it's fine with me. You're probably not going to get much benefit from it. If you don't want to get it, that's fine. I just think once again, we should be doing a better job kind of educating the populace about the, the decisions they're making about COVID prevention. That's a lot of great points there, John. All right. So I have three comments. Uh, first, I want to disagree with you when you said that you have no doubt it's a good medicine because I don't think the modifiers good or bad belong on medical interventions. Fair, fair point, fair point. Because, you know, anything can be good or bad depending on the depending on its usage. So, you know, that's, yeah, so that's number and, one. And that's, number, what, that's what I really meant to say, what you just said. Anything can be good or bad depending on how you use it, fair. Yeah, and dosage, you know, depends on, or toxicity well, depends on dose, that stuff. Um, the the other thing I would say about the evidence about a, a, a sixth or seventh uh, vaccine is that <clears throat> trials I think or evidence has an expiration date, right? So so in twenty twenty three is a lot different than twenty twenty, and you know you have you have different levels of immunity, you have different viruses, you have all this change, and I would argue that I would argue that the trial setting or the evidence setting right now is so much different. Than it was in 2020 when we when it's just obviously different and 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 as as a backup of that I will tell you that in my world in cardiology one of the most one of the most common things we do is put in a defibrillator in patients who have heart failure because the the two seminal trials in 2020 uh, were around you know around 2000 were positive so 20 years ago trials were positive however everything's changed right sudden death has gone down medicines are better. And the last defibrillator trial, Danish, was totally negative. And now in Europe, I read that there are going to be two. They're going to repeat the seminal trials. I saw because that. the because the the trial environment things have changed. So I would say that the evidence for a sixth or seventh booster now is much different than it was back then, and we ought to have new evidence. And and the third thing I would say to Adam's comment about harms of the vaccine. And and you said you just said offhandedly it lessens trust in in public health and to me, 
to me, this is one of the biggest lessons from from the pandemic is that this is underrated as a as a harm. I mean, because when we promote things with poor evidence and anything that would anything that shreds trust, I think is a huge, huge intangible harm. I agree with all of that. And the things that I'll just add to the pile. Um, I mean, the one thing that Adam says is like of all the things it's, you know, uh, if somebody over the age of 65 wants to do it, do I think they're like jumping off a bridge? No, I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, maybe there's a small benefit. Maybe it's a waste of your time. Maybe you'll get some sore arm. Maybe you'll, you're unlikely to have myocarditis because the first six, I'm going by the seventh assumption. The first six didn't do it for you. You know, okay. And you're not in the target age group, et cetera. Um, one thing I think it teaches us is that this is for 65 and up or those who have an risk factor. This same FDA said in 2021 that they cannot give an approval for 65 and up because the American people are so stupid. They won't know. You got to have a one dose for everybody, whether you're 12 years old and 16 had COVID or 85. We can't have different based on age. That's what they said. And now, of course, oh, now they acknowledge that like everything else in medicine, we know how old we are and we can easily do it. It's not so hard. So that's strike number one. Number two. Um, I think the observational data, yeah, Adam's point is you don't know which way the confounders go. I agree. Um, the trust, I think, is important. And then the point I want to make is Pfizer has $100 billion in one-year revenue, which I think is the most of any company in human history in pharmaceutical industry. They had so much cash in their pocket. You know, Borla can't even walk without a $100 bill falling out of his pocket. That they, <laughs> they bought Seattle Genetics. They bought Seattle Genetics at market cap $43 billion, which is a, such a premium of Seattle Genetics. And Seattle Genetics, the first thing they did was they had a failed phase three. No, yeah, this, the SWOG study screwed them. I mean, why is the company buying that company? That's what you do when you have just too much cash is burning a hole in your pocket. And in this economy, where are you going to invest that money? You just got to acquire. But why do they have so much cash? And I think it's because this FDA is like, what are, I mean, they are like, this FDA is like Pfizer's lapdog. They roll over, let him scratch his belly. I mean, like, give them, give them a challenge. Paxlovid, we still don't have a date, good data for vaccinated people, boosted people. Each additional booster, we're not asking them to do anything anymore. In fact, I don't even know if they requested this EUA. They just got it. And then to your point about where we're not in 2020, I really think they have to stop using the EUA. Like, the EUA's emergency use authorization, it requires a fed, federal declaration of an emergency, which legally they're keeping holding on to that. But can anyone tell me, in all honesty, a 65-year-old runner who's skinny and healthy, who's had five or six doses of vaccine and had COVID once or twice, is facing an emergency such that you have to like alter regulatory requirements? I think that's wrong. And my last point unrelated to this, you know, some, you know, I, 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 I think mifepristone should be on the market. I think that's crazy talk to trade to take it away. But I do think you should be able to sue the shit out of the FDA. And I want to see somebody sue them on a, a cancer drug approval or an Alzheimer's drug approval because FDA ultimately is responsible to the people. And so people, you get yourself in court. So anyway, that's my, that's my thoughts. Adam? Nothing else to say. <laughs> John, closing comments? No, I mean, I, I mean... I guess the one thing that struck me all during the pandemic is 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 why couldn't we we all of our lives in medicine we risk stratify right we we use medicines and we use surgeries and procedures based on risk and and the the, the idea that we weren't allowed to we weren't allowed to risk stratify people during the pandemic when 
the the earliest data was clear there was a major age gradient and and risk factor gradient and and you know now of course we are using this risk gradient and why we couldn't is just so mysterious and i i think that i think that people understand that and um really i mean really it was a real trust shredder i think because people are like you know why why we're mandating a 23 year old person in a hospital get uh, multiple vaccines uh, say post covid when clearly that person's risk was lower yeah yeah well i, I mean I, I think you know i i feel the need to make this point even though i don't believe it um I, you know the the argument was uh well by you know, vaccinating low-risk people were going to help high-risk people, right? Which um, there was a time that that argument was reasonable because we didn't know any better. Um, it didn't take long, I think, for that to become <laughs> an unreasonable argument. Um, and I think, you know, a wise person once said to me that, you know, you can motivate behavioral change in multiple ways. Um, you know, you can either do it by educating people about their own risk, about their risk to others, or you can motivate people through fear. Um, neither of those ways of motivating people is nearly 100% effective, right? Getting people to change their behavior is always nearly impossible. Um, but the downside of motivating people through fear rather than through education is enormous um and i sort of think that that's what we're paying for at this point um well yeah i agree adam i agree and i don't want listeners to think that it, you know it, but it became very clear to me it became very clear to everyone that there was a you know that there was a problem with with trans there was a you know it wasn't permit it wasn't uh, stopping transmission and so you know the man so the mandates went on way longer and and you say you you say uh persuading people with fear is problematic i couldn't agree more but also um it's possibly possibly even worse with coercion right i mean yeah. coer coercion should we should have the highest level bar right. when we start with coercion well, I'm glad Adam made the argument because I think that's an argument that a listener may be thinking. The two counter arguments I have is one, if you actually look at the date that most of the mandates went into effect, the date was beyond the date we knew that it couldn't halt transmission. You know, that, so that's, that's a bit of a problem. But the second argument I make is that even in the beginning where people thought it was highly effective, it wasn't clear to me that like if I got my own shot, that forcing John to get his gives an additional benefit to me. I, I never saw that sort of compelling case. But let's shift to the third issue, because we'll go on and on about this. The third issue. One, before the third issue is going to be about board certification and about these new rules for modules in Illinois State. But just by show of hands, who still has to mask in their clinics and hospitals? Uh, not me. We, You're out, we're, huh? We're all done completely. I think it's so interesting the, that which hospitals are the first to let it go and which are not. And... I don't want to say anything because it's going to spoil some paper that I'm about to publish, but okay. Um, uh, but let's just say I'll that, just say, yeah. you don't have to say anything about the paper, but I'll just say that the the moment that it happened, an email came uh, on a 10 o'clock, 10 a.m. on a Friday, and at 10.10, 10, 
everybody was mask free. <laughs> I mean, it 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 was it was a similar it was a similar that when the airlines announced uh, uh, no more masks, and it is just it has just been wonderful to be able to communicate with people and and. Um, I'm just now getting over the, the idea of being naked, you know, without a mask. Uh, and so it took a while to, to get rid of that, but it's, it has been wonderful to, to be with people in, in a normal way. Must be nice, but John. COVID's not as dangerous where you are. As in, <laughs> in Kentucky. I think it did a lot of damage in Kentucky as in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a great feeling. You know, there's the old saying in medicine, you don't want to be the first doctor to do something and you don't want to be the last. And all I want to say to these hospitals is you don't want to be the last one still masking. You're going to look pretty bad. All right, so let it go. All right, the final topic, board certification. Um, Adam had a great tweet recently, and I'm going to try to paraphrase it, but it was something like the state of Illinois passed some law that he's got to do like seven hours of training. You're going to tell us what it is. More modules. And I had a tweet complaining about modules um, and sort of led into the discussion of ABIM board certification and how many of us have to renew every 10 years. And some of us who got in, I think before 92, 93, are grandfathered in, quote unquote. They never had to do it. Um, why, don't, why don't you explain your, uh, the new rules you're facing in Illinois, Adam, and, and some of these thoughts on board certification? It's been very much on our minds lately because um, everybody's had to renew their licenses in Illinois. And there are just seems like every time the legislature meets, um, I'm probably guaranteeing myself that I'm going to get audited by saying any of this. Um, you know, something else is, is added on. And it's, uh, you know, right now, the last thing that was added was training and recognizing dementia. Um, and, you know, what's what's hard is that every one of them makes some sense. You know, recognizing dementia is important. Understanding the risks of prescribing opiates is important. Um, but as these things sort of pile one on top of another, you know, it's getting to the point where I have to put aside, you know, half days every now and then to get all of my compliance, adherence, um, you know, uh, mandates completed. Um, and and I feel like I, I'm, you know, I'm an obsessive person who's really concerned about the care I take for my patients. And, and I find it insulting that, um, that, you know, above and beyond, you know, the oath that I swore and the sort of blood, sweat and tears that I, I spend every day taking care of people, that somebody checks a box in the legislature and says, oh, you know, he's doing a crappy job unless he watches this you know, ridiculous video and answers three questions. Um, and can so we talk about know. the evidence for it? Which is like, I don't know, we're right. a field where you wouldn't give the patient a module on smoking cessation unless, like, let's say somebody came to you, Adam, and said, you know what, every one of your patients, I've got a 25 minute video, you can show them on this iPad. And you're going to say, you know, before we debut this at the UC hospital, like, shouldn't we do a study to show that patients gain something from this? Or, right. you know, and so similarly, your time is so valuable. And also we're dealing with burnout and like supposedly I keep seeing all these doctors and nurses quitting and nobody wants to do this thankless job. And then they want to come in and like make you do another bullshit module. And uh, and so let alone the evidence that whether or not it improves outcomes, which I think I know they don't have. I'm just curious about the evidence of surely they know that anyone who does this module, here's what you do. You hit next, 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 next until you get to the question at the end. 
you read the question, and if it's 90% of the time, it's such a common sense question like, you know, which is the best thing to do for a patient? Listen to them intently. B, uh, uh, throw them down a flight of stairs. C, you know, he's like, you know, it's like, okay, okay, uh, listen to it intently, right, you know? So, like, don't they have data that nobody's even looking at it? Yeah. And you know when you don't do that? Um, you don't do that when it really matters, right? There's no reason to avoid education or, you know, take shortcuts on tests if if you know that the only person who's penalized by not learning that information is basically your patients, right? Like we don't try to get good grades now for anybody else except the people we're taking care of. Um, so already you have to trust us that like we're doing our best to take care of people. And that certainly if I want to learn something, I'm going to find much better better resources right. than I'm being forced to go through here. Um, ah, I'm just like, I'm still annoyed about it. John, you have a comment? I want to have a comment. Yeah, so the, yeah. so the issue that we're struggling with in cardiology is that the American Board of Internal Medicine, um, you know, the, 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 the positive side and listeners will probably want to know that their doctors are fulfilling some degree of competence, right? So I want to go to a competent doctor and I want to have some sort of proof that this doctor is competent. And so the American Board of Internal Medicine, when I started, had a board exam and to go into your field, you had to pass a board exam and that was it. And then slowly and gradually over time, the American Board of Internal Medicine has added extra features. And of course, these all come at a cost. Um, you know, a, a year, an exam every 10 years, and then maintenance of certification where you do a certain amount of hours. And, and regular continuing medical, medical education doesn't count. Like if I go to a meeting and learn about EP or whatever, that may or may not count for the American Board of Internal Medicine. It has to be their brand. Okay, well, then what do they do? Well, then they then they partner with the American College of Cardiology and HRS, and then American Cardiology will sell you a two thousand uh, dollar booklet to study for ABIM. So it's this whole uh, thing, and it's just been added on. But here's the problem, and I think Wes Fisher, we have posts coming from Wes Fisher, who's an EP in Chicago. He's been great about this. Here's the problem with this whole argument: it's all. Uh, undermined by the fact that they let the oldest doctors, the ones who trained before whatever, I'm like two years from being grandfathered in. Oh. If you finish that early, then you're grandfathered in. You don't have to do any of this. And of course, if you're an older doctor, you're the one who should most do continuing medical education. <laughs> and so it's it's completely undermined. And, and basically, I've come to believe that it's just a sort of rent-seeking uh, way uh, of, of, of making money for an organization for organizations and extracting money it, and it's been given a tailwind because now most employed physicians have two four five thousand dollars of CME money and so we've lost the will to fight because we're like screw it we'll just take it out of our CME money and and do it so it's I don't know what the answer is for 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 certifying doctors but this this is a, a extremely flawed um, a program. They're just a good parasite, if you ask me. They see that doctors make a lot of money. You got a lot of blood in your veins. A good parasite will suck you, but it can't suck too much and kill the host. You know that's a bad parasite. The problem is they're pushing their luck recently. They're pushing their goddamn luck with Adam's bill. They're pushing their luck because they're gonna kill some hosts. 
And by that, I mean they're going to get somebody in the age of range of 55 to 65 who is going to do a few more years that's going to say, enough of this. And to be honest, I, I, I do work in a couple hospitals, and there's one hospital that keeps emailing me so much to do. And I really started to think, like, you know, it's not even worth the modules. Like, you know, I'm only going there a little bit, and I'll just do more at the other hospitals. I'll just do one set of useless modules. So, you know, no evidence. They're sucking our blood. Um, why does it exist? I think because the same way we have given our practices to private equity and to the administrative state, um, this is just another way we've let them abuse us and we just take it and we take it because, you know, even though the mosquito sucks your blood, you got a lot of blood, you know? So like, yeah, you're, like you say. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, one of the good things Biden did was he like limited the amount patients can pay out of pocket for oral anti-cancer drugs in Medicare. He like capped it at a thousand, fifteen hundred, something like that, rather than it could be like, you know, seven thousand and then you hit the donut hole, you know, it could have been really bad. And I think that's good. But one of the downsides is the moment you spend, you don't have to spend out of your own pocket. As you say, John, the moment you have the CME money to do it, you don't have the skin in the game. And so you don't fight as hard. And so the grandfathering in was a tactic to prevent the doctors of the day from not accepting it. That was why they did it. You know, it was a political bargain. You spending CME money is a political bargain. This is a very clever parasite. It's sucking your blood and infected our brains. But I think the solution well, I, to the parasite is removal. Go ahead. It's to is rip what? it out. Rip that fucking parasite yeah, out. Yeah, but the problem, the problem, Vinay, is this, is is this, and, and I think the rent seekers know this, is that that would require, if every doctor, if every doctor just said, tomorrow morning, we're done with this. We're not working until this changes. It would change in like three days. Yeah. But we, when I joined a cardiology group, we had 20 cardiologists. You couldn't get 20 doctors to agree on anything, one thing. So there's, the rent seekers know that there's enough people who are just saying, I can't be bothered with this. I'll, 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 I'll pay to play. And so it, it's just there, there'll never be an organization because doctors have other, we have other goals, right? We have, we want to take care of patients. We need to pay our mortgage. We need to, you know, keep our kids in school. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know what the solution is. And in fact, the legislatures can say other board, like there's another, there's a competing board. Um, uh, I, I can't remember the acronym, but there's yeah. a competing board. Like the national the board problem, or something. Yeah. The problem is that the ABIM has captured the insurance companies. So then you'll get a letter saying you could be board certified by the other board, but the insurance companies will say, guess what? We're not, we're not covering, we're not covering you unless you're certified by ABIM. So. Adam, closing thoughts on this issue. I can't talk about it anymore. I'm so depressed. <laughs> I'll tell you, though, I mean, I guess, you know, I always tell people this, which is like, they're so true. It's a thought experiment. And actually, let's close with this. This is the closing thought experiment. I always say, you know, you've made the right choices in your life and career. As if I came to you and I just gave you $100 million, John, here's $100 million. And then I asked you, what are you going to do next week? Are you going to go into your EP lab and say, guess what, guys? I'm rich. I don't need your money. I'm done. Are you going to cancel your talks? Are you going to stop doing these podcasts on a Sunday? <laughs> maybe, maybe that one, maybe that one. Um, are you going to stop being a writer and stop your podcast? And I honestly go through my own life and think about, you know, what would I keep and what wouldn't I keep? And the, the, the answer is I always just come back to just where I am. Like I would take the Uber a little more often 
Like I, I, I ride the public bus a lot and I bicycle a lot. I, I maybe sometimes when it's raining, I might take, uh, you know, a cab. Um, but besides that, I think I would just do everything. I still, you know, the classes I teach, the clinics I do, the attending I do, it's all like what I would want to do, even if I didn't need the money. Um, except these modules are the only thing that sometimes they test me. They're testing me with their module. And one of these days, if I had a lot of money, I would just like find a way to, to, to get extract revenge on these module makers. Okay, so that's the, cl the closing thought experiment. You have $100 million gifted to you, John. What are you doing differently in your career? And then we'll do Adam and then we'll close. Yeah, I think that I think that would be a real struggle because um, we all have our pegs that we hang our self-esteem on, right? That gives us meaning. And and if, if you didn't have a peg, you know, if it wasn't um, mastering conduction system pacing or, or uh, writing uh, in a, in a, in a beautiful way or clear way, if it wasn't a good podcast or, or giving a good talk, uh, taking care of patients, what, what would we get meaning from? And so, yeah, a hundred million dollars would be, that's a lot of money. Um, uh, but, but I, I can't imagine, you know, I can't imagine just, uh, going to the AT&T store and getting a different phone and saying, see, see you later. I, I, I think I probably would, I probably would do the same thing for a while, though, um, because it gives meaning. Would you cut back on hours? Would you change anything? Um, it, it's really hard, right? Because because um, I'm 59 years old and I've never worked harder in my life. You know, uh, um, uh, travel, as you know, is hard. Yeah. Uh, preparing talks is 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 you know talks don't make themselves. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I, I might say no to to certain talks or, or travel, but uh, my work is I you know I can't complain about my work. It's 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 pretty nice job. Adam, I am fifty six. I've got what I think four more years, and I think what I would do is I would wait until a month before I was already planning on retiring and take your hundred million dollars then because <laughs> then that would pay for some nicer travel during my retirement and make things easier for my, I don't know, grandchildren, great, great grandchildren, whatever. So um, I'm just going to scam you out of your cash at some point. Um, but right now, you know, I think we're all in the same boat. Not only does our, uh, do our professions define us, but you know, I feel like I've made good decisions. I'm very happy with what I'm doing, and and we're we're well compensated. But I, you know, I I couldn't ask for anything more. Wow, I, I would buy I would buy a couple of new bikes, um, <laughs> and, and yeah, I would have the highest level bikes, and I would have a gravel bike, and I would have another mountain bike. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have a couple road bikes because, you know, Italian, Italian road bikes, they're, they're great when they're working, but they break down a lot. So I would have one for when it breaks down. Yeah. I'd buy more electric guitars. I'd buy more, uh, <laughs> more mount. I'd buy more bicycles like you. I'd get, you know, a certain derailleur that I'm eyeing, a certain power meter. You're right. But in terms of um, work, well, I think that's the closing thought, um, which is that I think maybe this is also why we're actually friends in real life, at least I think, uh, which is that, um, you know, we all actually, despite all the complaints, you know, to, to do to do something where, you know, you do it for free, really like it, you do it, you don't, you wouldn't do it for the money. Um, that's a privilege. And, and I think not all the doctors I know feel that way, um, especially in this day of burnout, um, especially I'm with that, huh? I'm not friends with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's just be clear. Okay. So on that positive <laughs> note, we'll be back next week. Uh, thank you so much. Adam and John, this has been a great discussion. Welcome back to the channel. Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director, is becoming quite the politician. By that I mean she's becoming good at lying. She lied to Congress a couple times yesterday. I want to walk you through those, but I want to talk more broadly about her failures, failures of evidence generation, etc., etc. Rochelle Walensky is just, frankly, not a good CDC director. She trivializes harms of vaccines. She has a one-size-fits-all mentality when it comes to vaccine recommendations, but except for the new one, where, of course, now we can focus on 65 and up. So people seem to forget the argument, which was we couldn't have had a tailored guidance for 65 and up because people will be too confused by that guidance. And now they're going to go ahead and issue such guidance showing that the American people are smart enough to know how old they are. It was always ridiculous to have a one-size-fits-all policy. That was on her watch. It was always ridiculous to not take myocarditis seriously in young men. That was on her watch. It was beyond ridiculous to continually push a series of retrospective garbage papers in MMWR and cite that prominently on long COVID, on risks of to the unvaccinated who have had COVID, on children, et cetera, et cetera. They did, not, they did nothing but that. They put the worst quality evidence out there to support their bizarre masking strategy, which is, I think, still in an effect. I think they would have you have toddlers still masking uh, for the next hundred years. They've done just a bad job. And the root failure, what is the root failure? I think the root failure is it's somebody who wants to be well-liked and does well in bureaucracies that has this position. And she's also somebody who doesn't really understand evidence-based medicine. That's her root failure. She doesn't understand evidence. She doesn't get evidence. And she'd rather lie to preserve her face than to confront the fact that she has made mistakes and that they could have done a better job. So how did she lie recently to Congress? Well, she was confronted by the question, said Dr. Walensky, back in 2021, you told us, quote, vaccinated people do not carry the virus. They do not get sick, end quote. Was that accurate? She says, quote, at the time it was accurate, she replied confidently. She said, we've had an evolution, we've had an evolution in the science and an evolution of the virus. All the data at the time suggested that vaccinated people, even if they got sick, could not transmit the virus. Even if they got sick, what the hell are you talking about? You never had that data. You're just making shit up. And in fact, even when you said it at the time, your CDC staff tried to walk it back in the days since then. You may have forgotten that. And there are other people who said misleading things, like Fauci said that vaccinated people become a dead end to the virus. That was also false and misleading. How did they really get it wrong? We were in the midst of a global calamity in 2020. People were voluntarily and by force of law, staying in their houses, sheltering in place, not going to work. Schools were closed by the force of law, destroying the livelihood of a generation of children, even though children were not at high risk in any way, shape, or form. It was always on par with seasonal influenza for children. They could have easily gone to school. There was no evidence that closing schools actually decreased transmission in the community. All these factors showed that that was a pretty boneheaded decision and has robbed a generation of their future. But it was a tumultuous time. And during this time, we were developing the vaccine under Operation Warp Speed, which was a success, actually. I don't think people realize that. And Operation Warp Speed, at a time of great crisis, streamlined a lot of aspects of vaccine development. But one aspect of vaccine development that they could have done a better job is the evidence generation part on the tail end. What do I mean by that? The original trials of Pfizer and Moderna did not routinely swab contacts of people who are in those studies. Okay, in the Moderna, let me, let me explain what I mean. 
You're in this randomized control trial. You've agreed to participate. They're asking you for all sorts of things from blood, from information about yourself, to report any symptoms of COVID-19, to use the swabs that they provide to you, to mail those in so that they can test to see if the vaccine is effective. You're doing a whole lot. I mean, you're a participant in a randomized study in a pivotal time, at a time of national crisis. You're either in the placebo arm or you're in the intervention arm. It wouldn't be that much to ask you to do just a little bit more that might give us some useful information. What might that be? One might be every week or every two days or every day, you just swab yourself and we just store those samples. And then later we randomly go pick a bunch of samples and run PCR testing to see do you have the virus. They actually did do that in a subgroup of the Moderna study. They found a 60% efficacy in lowering the rate of virus in your nose, but that's not exactly the question of transmission. That's what I think people forget. Could you be vaccinated, have a lower risk of getting sick with COVID-19, lower risk of severe disease, but nonetheless spread the virus as freely as anyone else? Or did your risk of spreading the virus go down as well? Now, how might you get at that question? That's a question of whether or not you can give it to someone at such a level that they actually get sick from it, not exactly swabbing yourself and looking at PCR. It's actually, do they get it? And there's a simple solution to that, which is that when you run the randomized control trial, the people who live in your house may also participate you may randomly assign people kits to give to their family members to swab the family routinely. Or you could survey the family and see how many family members got sick with COVID-19 to show not only do we reduce COVID-19 in the people we've either vaccinated versus those that are in placebo, there's also a reduction in the cumulative number of cases in households, in those households where at least one person received vaccination. You could easily do such a study. Why might you do such a study like that? Well, you might choose to do it that way because you're spending trillions of dollars. You're spending trillions of dollars. The world is in crisis. Everything is gummed up. Society is not functioning the way it normally functions. You might think this is a great opportunity to actually do some things right, to collect good information. In fact, you could go beyond that. There are a lot of ways you could have improved those studies. You could have had a large randomized control trial with different cohorts. In the elderly, the primary endpoint of the study might have been overall survival in nursing home patients, just to prove that not only do you get less virus, you actually have a reduction in hospitalization or death, or maybe there's an even overall survival benefit, and you could even run that in nursing homes. I mean, that could have a really hard endpoint. In younger populations, you could actually even run the study a little bit longer. You could have made hospitalization be the primary endpoint of study, not just symptomatic SARS-CoV-2. Um, and in very younger populations, presumably because the risks are lower, you could run it even longer to get a little bit more information. And you certainly could look at close contacts. These are all things you could do. You don't need one study. You don't need one randomized trial. You could have multiple randomized trials of each product. You could have ongoing randomized trials where you're testing different doses and different dosing strategy. You remember Pfizer was Q21 days. Every 21 days you got first dose, second dose. Moderna was 28 days. Those were arbitrarily chosen to get a quick readout on this study. You could have made it 21 days but had an arm that goes to 42 days or 68 days or et cetera, et cetera. And then you would learn a lot. You would have actually solved the safety, one of the crucial problems the safety signal problem. You would have found that spacing those doses apart, particularly in younger men, would lower the risk of myocarditis. You could have found that. And you might have also found you didn't need the dose you gave them in order to justify a strong protection against severe disease. You may have also figured out one versus two dose, two versus three doses. You could have done those studies. Really a platform of studies that you could have embarked on. She didn't do any of that. She didn't advocate for it. She never talked about it. She just assumes that the minimal amount of studies that they've done and the shitty MMWR retrospective mask studies, that's gospel. That's the scientific truth. And that's her Achilles heel. I'd, I really don't think she understands 
the importance of randomized control trials. I really don't think she understands why comparing Maricopa County masking to Pima County is not a scientifically valid thing to do. It's crazy. It's got so many confounders. You're never going to get the truth out of it. I don't think she has a track record as somebody who's a great evidence-based medicine proponent pre-COVID-19. She's an ID doctor. People act as if being an ID doctor is some great thing. It's not if you don't understand evidence. Okay, Understanding evidence is the most important thing in every branch of medicine and maybe even beyond medicine. And she doesn't understand evidence. So when she went there and said that all the available evidence showed that vaccinated people, they don't carry the virus, uh, uh, that was inaccurate. And what she should have said is that, you know what, Congressman, we could have actually demanded better studies to see if vaccinated people could transmit. We don't have that. We didn't do that. I apologize. It was my predecessor to some degree, more than me. She could say that. She'd throw him under the bus, throw Redfield under the bus. But what we're doing right now is an ongoing study. We know that we can't roll out this vaccine to everyone right away. So we're doing a step wedge design, looking at household contacts as we roll out the vaccine. So Congressperson will be able to answer your question, whether or not there's a reduction in spread by swabbing people in the households where one family member got the COVID-19 vaccine. We're working on it, Congressperson. We don't know yet, but we have a study for that. Then the Congressperson says, hey, you know, what's the data for uh, masking two-year-olds? We're working on that too. We have a cluster randomized trial. Actually, we have several. We have one for uh, under five. We have one for, we have a couple for five to seven, one in the school setting, one not in school setting. What about healthcare workers? Um, Director Walensky, uh, do healthcare workers need to wear masks? You know what, Congressperson, we actually have multiple cluster randomized control trials testing, N95 versus KF94. Maybe since it's a little bit easier on the ears, uh, they're going to wear that better. We don't know the answer. We're running all these studies. She didn't do any of that. She didn't run any studies. This is a time where the government is spending trillions and trillions of dollars, I think $6 trillion direct federal outlays, maybe $20 trillion in incurred costs at a societal level. And, and she's not spending a nickel on these studies. She controls a massive budget at CDC, a staff of 40,000, perhaps many useless people there too, collecting wages because they're working from home and not doing anything of value and generating low quality evidence. All of that money, all of those resources could have been marshaled for this agenda, a scientific agenda. You know, I believe in peak crisis, they actually brought a boat hospital outside of New York City just in case they were to need it, they didn't need it. That's the kind of resources this country has. And you're telling me you can't run a randomized control trial on any question. And you, and yet you pair that with just extreme arrogance. And I think that's why she's just so terrible. And I think the f future people will decide that she's terrible at this job. And uh, recently the question was raised is, did Fauci do a good job? The answer is no. <laughs> I said that I don't think he's an evil person. I continue to believe that I don't think she's evil and I don't think he's evil. Um, evil in my mind means your intent was actually to harm people. But I think if you take a very incompetent person and put them in a position of authority and their primary goal is to save face and enhance their own position as many people's goal is, um, you will get a lot of extremely terrible consequences from that. It doesn't rise to the level of what I consider evil, but it is gross incompetence Yes, they should be terminated. No, they should never win an award. And no, they should ever have that position of responsibility again. Those should be their punishments. Um, but, you know, would I hold a tribunal and help put them in court? No, they're just incompetent in the way many people are incompetent. The person who hired her is also incompetent because it's a political lackey who's trying to find some political loyalist and not somebody who actually understands science. And the culture of science where people aid and abet her, where they praise her, it's also an incompetent culture where they're all just kind of jockeying for their own positions. And it does work well because if you praise her consistently, you might become the Yale School of Public Health dean. You never know. You never know where you'll be. 
And if you praise Biden, even when he makes mistakes, you might be the White House COVID czar. And from there, who knows what the future may hold. You may be on the board of directors of Pfizer and Moderna someday. We'll see. We'll see where he goes. But the last FDA commission, Scott Gottlieb, is on the board of directors of Pfizer. So you never know. So that was one great lie. The great lie was that she just had to, she didn't have to say it so confidently. And in fact, I think there was a different argument to make here back in those days. Uh, Dr. Walensky, you're saying that people who are vaccinated don't need to wear the mask. Uh, uh, you're saying that these mask rules can follow. We're talking about May of 2021. Um, do vaccinated people spread the virus? Um, you know, you could say, well, you know, we don't know the answer to that question. We're running a cluster randomized trial. But more to your point, sir, more to your point, Congressperson, your question is, do we need to do continue masking? What I would say to you is we've actually never justified it based on randomized evidence. We did it because we had nothing else to offer and many of us were scared and we flip-flopped on the evidence and that cost us some trust in the public health. Um, once people are vaccinated, we've done all that we're going to be able to do in the foreseeable future to lower the risk of bad outcomes. Uh, either we get lucky and uh, the virus dissipates or the virus continues to spread. But either way, there ain't nothing we can do. And so we say drop masking because there's no theoretical benefit. If this virus will break through the vaccine, it's gonna break through. And so even if the mask had some very modest effect, which we don't know, sir, because we never ran the randomized trial, um, it's not gonna change things over the next year or two years. So we're just dropping it right away. Uh, moreover, no one has ever proven to us that if I'm somebody who's worried about my health, I can get that vaccine if I haven't yet had COVID and I might lower my risk of severe disease. But no one has proven that if I force a 20 year old or force somebody down the street to get theirs, that that reduces my chance of getting severe disease. You're asking about transmission, that's a fair question. But my question is, if I compel that third party to get it, am I actually better off in any meaningful metric? And sir, we don't have the answer to that question. And as such, I think mandates would be a premature abuse of uh, public health authority. She could have said that. She never said any of that because she's not a very smart person at this job. She's not good. She doesn't understand evidence. She's not thoughtful. Um, she's probably getting a lot of coaching. That little reply that she gave is probably heavily scripted by people, but it's not actually a good reply. Why do they keep her in the administration? Because this is politics. Being good is not a prerequisite to being a good politician. Just going along, being loyal, you will get loyalty back from the boss, and then you can just say bullshit over and over again. And if you're on the good side, the Democrat side, the media won't call you out on it. If you're on the Republican side, they'll call you out on it repeatedly, but they won't if you're on the Democratic side. And that's how Fauci skates away, skates away from all his fiascos. Whether or not there was a lab leak, I don't know, but I certainly don't think he's forthcoming with questions. School closure, which he was a proponent of, masking, masking young kids, which he's a proponent of, not running any randomized control trials with the entire NIAID budget. That's on his watch. You know, all of these great failures that he has made on his watch and just terrible. But that wasn't her only lie. She likes to lie to Congress. And her next lie was about the Cochrane Review on physical interventions to slow the spread of respiratory viruses, where she said, quote, I think it is notable that the editor-in-chief of Cochrane actually said the summary of that review was, she retracted the summary of that review and said it was inaccurate, end quote. Uh, that's a goddamn lie, okay? She's lying to Congress. Walensky's lying to Congress. We had Tom Jefferson on this show before uh, with Carl Hennigan. Uh, we'll have him on again. Uh, that's a lie. Nobody made any correction to the document that is the Cochrane Review. The editor-in-chief made a statement that was completely incorrect uh, and contradicted some public statements that Tom Jefferson had made in the press, which were 100% correct, as I detailed in that interview and actually showed you the quotes. Uh, uh, but nothing was retracted to the review. The review was unchanged. And so she is lying, by she I mean Rochelle Walensky, is lying about what happened to the Cochrane Review. 
And the failure here is that she ran zero randomized controlled trials. How can you call yourself a scientist, the head of the CDC, and you have never tested the strategy that other nations are not using, certainly not in the same way, they're not going down to two years old. There is global equipoise. You don't even understand what that term is because she's previously lied about what equipoise is. She just keeps lying. And it's just really, it's not evil. It's just gross incompetence. It's just what happens when you take an incompetent person and put them in this leadership position. The problem is that most of the people you might pick are probably incompetent in these ways. We don't do a good job in medicine of teaching how to appraise evidence, of demanding more evidence when you don't have evidence. We do a great job of generating bluster, acting like you're sure. That's a big part of the implicit medical curriculum. But saying, I don't know the answer, and we are studying it in a appropriately designed, adequately powered cluster randomized trial, that's something we don't teach well enough. We teach people to generate answers, pulling it out of their ass. She's the pro at that. That's why she was the chief at I, she was chief of ID at a Harvard hospital, and that's why she got the job. And she's still good at bullshitting because the people in Congress aren't adept and adroit enough to call her out and actually put their finger exactly on why she's being dishonest. So... They should have said to her, uh, Dr. Walensky, uh, Cochrane has issued no change to the actual document itself. Uh, this is a document that's well uh, consistent with what Cochrane does, and you're saying it uh, doesn't, uh, it was retracted or had some changes made. That's factually untrue. Uh, do you want to retract that statement, or would you rather do it next time? Uh, or you want to double down? So, you know, overall, I think that history will ultimately conclude that although there were errors in 2020, and there were errors under the prior administration, no doubt about that, those errors, I think, predominantly occurred in the months of December, January, and February when you might have interdicted on this problem. Those, I think, were the key errors of the prior administration, those months. By the time March came, the errors were that they were scared shitless, and then they launched this 15 days to slow the spread. They had no idea where that's going to go. They pulled that out of fear, and they didn't have a real plan. They closed the schools, but then the deeper errors were not made by, I don't think, Trump himself. He actually wanted to reopen the schools, which was right, but it was Fauci who continued to dig into that position. There are so many errors around whether or not we could investigate freely the origin of the virus. Those errors were compounded by the media who dubbed people who wanted to investigate lab leak as racist, while they said wet market, that's not a racist idea at all. That's what Apoorva Manvi said when for the New York Times, the reporter. She tweeted that. That was a problem. Uh, then 2021 rolled out, and the prior administration gifted this administration a great thing, which was the vaccine, but the rollout was bungled in so many ways. Fauci didn't want to spread the two doses apart, which now has been completely validated as a strategy that would have saved lives because more people would have gotten one dose and the first dose has a substantive reduction in severe disease that would have saved lives. It would also would have mitigated myocarditis, something that they didn't run any studies to try to mitigate. Um, it would have had great benefits. He didn't do that because he's arrogant and thought he knew the answer. You could have said, again, with the NIAID budget, I don't know the answer, but we will do another randomized control trial of the rollout, or we will do a step wedge designed rollout and try to get some better information on this because I don't really know the answer. Could have had some humility. He didn't. He also never ran ever in his entire time a single randomized control trial uh, of, of masking, the single most divisive thing that he himself flip-flopped on in 10 weeks. That's bad. And she's terrible too. She may not have understood the uncertainty. She may have wanted to have simple answers. She may not have really thought through the problem because the problem of compulsion is not that can somebody who's vaccinated spread. That's not the problem. The problem is that if the vaccinated person is already vaccinated, 
does compelling the third party benefit that person? And if so, is that benefit so great it over it outweighs the autonomy that that person ought to have for their health decisions, which should seldom be outweighed in biomedical ethics? And the answer was always no. No way it could have outweighed that. And also, if you did any sort of back-of-the-envelope numbers, you would find that that number would be so horrific. So the mandates were always just such a bad and unethical medical policy, unjustified. And the fact that they continued to mandate when they knew it couldn't even stop transmission, that just makes it worse. But it doesn't mean they were justified if it did stop transmission. They were always unjustified. They never had the basis for that. And they certainly never thought about the broader implications. They just don't want to admit any errors. And I think that's why... I've said it before, they should lose your trust. I mean, I now have 0% trust in the CDC. I will never trust them. And I hope someday that there is a president who comes in and what they do is they completely gut that agency. You probably have to fire lots of people who are useless. And then what you need to do is put a firewall. There should be one agency in charge of statistics. They merely report numbers as accurately as possible. They do not set policy. And then you have a policy recommendation arm that recommends policy, they're firewalled from the stats arm, and maybe a third arm that actually does research on the policy, also firewalled. But the moment one agency generates the policy, then keeps track of the kid deaths, they put all these policies in place to restrict children, and they're also keeping track of the deaths of children, and then they keep getting it wrong and overestimating the deaths of children, what am I to think? They're doing it because they want to justify their failed policy. What am I to think when they come up with the policy and then they do the paper that analyzes whether or not the policy was a success, and then they publish it in their own journal, and it concludes, lo and behold, their policy was a success. What am I to think? The, 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 the perceived conflict of interest is so great, the agency needs to be cut up into little pieces. The stats agency should have nothing to do with politics. The policy-making agency should have something to do with politics, because policy is, to some degree, values and preferences. It should but they should be separate. And then the assessment agency should be like CBO. It should be completely separate from the politics of the situation. So Rochelle Walensky, she's lying and lying and lying to Congress. She did a bad job, abysmal job, failed. Uh, her punishment should be to for people to know she did a bad job, for that to be covered in the news outlets, for her not to get a lucrative consulting gig when she's done with this, for her to be fired from her job and never have a position of power again. And I would argue she should never be the leader of any health organization ever. And I think that's true, not just for her, but for Fauci, for Jaw, for many others, for Marx particularly. Marx is, I'm most worried he's gonna go to Pfizer soon because the way he's making them rich, but uh, he shouldn't. And he's done nothing but damage. And these people are really not scientists because it's easy to say you're a scientist, you quote unquote follow the science. The hardest thing to say is that as a real scientist, I didn't know the answer to a question, so I designed a prospective randomized experiment to settle the question. As far as I can see, they never do that. Can anyone give me an example where they've actually said, we don't know the answer, distancing kids. Should it be six feet or 10 feet? We don't know the answer. We ran a randomized trial. They didn't. Uh, uh, cohorting in school. We don't know the answer. We ran a randomized trial. They didn't. Masking two-year-olds. We don't know the answer. We ran a randomized They didn't. Boosters. They didn't. Dosing. They didn't. They didn't run a single one that I can think of on anything meaningful. They talk to Albert Borla and they take as gospel whatever he says. They go to those Israel analyses and they take as gospel those analyses when they uh, go along with their preconceived policy notions, retrospective observational, p-hacked kind of studies, sure. But they don't actually commission controlled experiments, even though the person who's telling you is the person in charge of the federal budget, as in Fauci's case, $6 billion budget. Terrible, just a terrible performance. And much worse from 2021 to the present day than 2020. 
because the mistakes in 2020 were in the first quarter and then by then the sort of the die had been cast and there wasn't a whole lot you could do. Uh, developing the vaccine was the best thing you could do. And uh, lockdowns and all that stuff was unnecessary, likely probably didn't have much of a difference over voluntary behavioral change. And the true verdict will actually be uh, decades to come because you can need some good studies. All right, those are my thoughts on this complex issue. Key takeaway points, just didn't do a good job. Also lying to Congress and just not a good scientist, not a real scientist in the sense that I think of it. Tom Jefferson, real scientist. Carl Hennigan, real scientist. Walensky, political hack. All right, if you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. I'll be back next time.